The following sermon is from Grace Church East County. More information about Grace Church is available at gracechurcheast.org. Because we were all away, I invited a friend to come and serve us in God's Word today. He's Dustin Saunders. He's with us from our friends at Del Cerro Baptist Church, a church we're very grateful for and have a good relationship with. I've gotten to know Dustin through a couple of different pastors' fellowships over the years, have have experienced and witnessed, benefited from his joy in Jesus, and I knew you're going to benefit as well. Before Dustin comes, Mindy's going to pray for us and read our passage. Join me in prayer before I read this morning. Lord, we are humbled to be in your presence. May we be aware that our ears need to be open and we need to have our hearts available to receive what you have for us this morning. May you teach us richly and deeply this morning and may we leave this place ready to go forward with the gospel to those around us. Amen. Again, it's a long one. Luke 1, 57 to 79. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zachariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by that name. And they, <clears throat> and they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then shall this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins 
because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mindy. Dustin, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Well, good morning. As Tab said, my name is Dustin Saunders. I am one of the pastors at Del Cerro Baptist Church. Uh, there has been another pastor named Dustin from Del Cerro Baptist Church who has preached here before. I am not him, just in case you're wondering. They, people confuse us all the time. We look the same. I get it. Um, I'm a different Dustin, <laughs> but I bring you greetings from the saints there. We love Grace Church. We love Pastor Tab. We pray for you all often in our prayer meetings and in our services. I was telling one of the sisters here this morning, one of the downsides of being in ministry is that it's very rare you get to visit other churches, and so it's wonderful to be with you here. It is a privilege, um, and as we begin I want to answer this question first. Why, why this text? How, how is this text relevant to where you are as a church? Why a sermon from the first chapter of Luke in the middle of a series that you have been going through in Exodus? Well, when Pastor Tab invited me to come and preach, I began to think through the texts that I had been studying. And this one stood out from the rest. And there's really two reasons for that. Number one... Because this text, specifically Zechariah's prophecy of Christ, so clearly brings together the Old and the New Testaments. It so clearly shows that everything that happened in the Old Testament, everything that happened in the book of Exodus, everything that God was doing back then was pointing forward to Jesus Christ, the coming of the Son of God in the flesh. It's what everything was pointing to. So that's the first reason. Number two, because the theme of this text specifically, the, the focal point of this prophecy is the mercy of God and understanding God's mercy is foundational for understanding the gospel. It's foundational for understanding the Christian life. As Martin Luther once said, every week I preach the gospel to my people because every week they forget. Amen. <laughs> Amen. We need this. We need to meditate on the mercy of God. We need to daily ponder anew the grace of God displayed in Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're going to do this morning in Luke 1. So if you haven't turned there yet, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 1. I want you to see these things with your own eyes in your own Bible. Uh, and, and our sister read 57 through 79. To give us a little bit of context, we're really going to just focus on 67 through 79 here on the words of Zechariah's prophecy. And just as by, by way of a quick reminder, the, the context, what's going on here, really, this is an Old Testament prophecy of the coming of Messiah Jesus. Now, you might say, look at your Bible and say, uh, Dustin, this isn't Luke, that's in the New Testament. Um, and you'd be right, but, but remember who Zechariah is. Think of the timing of this. He is a priest in the temple of God. Jesus has not been born yet. Mary's pregnant, but Jesus has not been born yet. Zechariah is living and serving God under the old covenant. He's living and serving God under the same system, so to speak, that was handed down to Moses at Sinai. 
In every way, Zechariah is very much an Old Testament saint. And yet, he sees, he feels, he knows that the Old Covenant is now coming to an end. And in, 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 his, in his lifetime, his son, who will come to be known as John the Baptist, has just been born. And as Zechariah holds him for the first time, the Spirit fills him, and he praises God, and he prophesies, not for the birth of his son, primarily, but for the birth of the son who is about to be born, the son of God. He knows that the son is setting on the era of the old covenant and the new covenant is about to be established. So that's what we're seeing here. So let's look to the words that the spirit speaks through Zechariah. Look at verse 67 here. The text says, in his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now, this whole section is in past tense, even though it is presently happening. Zechariah is speaking of the birth of Jesus in the past tense, even though he hasn't been born yet. Why? Because Zechariah knows that it is sure and certain and unstoppable. Jesus hasn't even been born yet, and Zechariah can say through faith, God has redeemed his people because the salvation of God's people is certain. Now, this language of, of visitation, of redemption, God has visited, God has redeemed, is, is Old Testament language. In fact, everything that we see here in this prophecy is just all referring to things in the Old Testament. The Spirit prophesying through Zechariah is simply interpreting the Old Testament for us. This language, visitation, redemption, is Exodus language. It is the language used when God came to his people to rescue them from their enemies in Egypt. God has visited and redeemed his people before, and he is doing it again now. But God's rescue here in this text is, is different than in the Exodus. And so Zechariah continues. He gets more specific. How has God visited his people? Look at, look at verse 69. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. So this new child, Jesus, is the Messiah, which means anointed king. He is a horn of salvation. Now that is strange language for us. What does that mean? Well, again, it's Old Testament language. The horn in the Old Testament is a symbol of strength and of refuge. In 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 3, it says this, David's praying, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior, you save me from violence. So this Messiah will not only be the horn of salvation, but he will be in the house of his servant David. He will be from the bloodline of King David himself. This Jesus who is coming will be the fulfillment of God's covenant with David in 2 Samuel 7. You can see the Old Testament promises and prophecies start to stack up here. God had promised David before he died that he would one day give him this son. He said in 2 Samuel 7, this is the Lord speaking to David, when your days are fulfilled 
and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now that promise was fulfilled first in Solomon, sort of, but not completely. Solomon's throne didn't last forever, and Solomon built a temple for God, but that temple was destroyed. This promise is ultimately and fully fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He, as Messiah, will be the son of David and the son of God. God had promised David that he would raise up a son from his line, a son who would build a temple for God's name. And this son would sit on the throne of David's kingdom forever. And Zechariah, through the Spirit, is telling us that son is here, and his name is Jesus. And we'll see more of this temple language later on in his prophecy. Now, Zechariah continues. He wants to make sure that we know that this is what all of the prophets had always talked about. Look at verse 70. As he spoke, God, as God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Who spoke by the mouth of the prophets? God. Which is why the term mouth is singular here. It's really interesting. The, the prophets, plural, have one mouth because they had one message coming from one God. Simply mouthpieces of God. That's what a prophet is. And when they spoke, they spoke of one thing primarily because everything was going here to Jesus, that he would come and he would deliver his people. Now, why would God do this? Why? God, Zechariah, the spirit speaking through him, peels back the layer and gives us the motivation, so to speak, of God. Why is God doing this? Why would God deliver his people from their enemies? Look at verse 72. Here's his purpose, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. Now, in these verses, we really have the center of, of this first section of the prophecy. And the center is this, the mercy of God, the covenant faithfulness of God. Why would God save his people? Well, the answer is pretty straightforward. Because he promised that he would. And why did he promise to save them? To show his mercy, to demonstrate his mercy, to display his mercy. This is the whole point of this section. And really the center of the gospel of Jesus Christ you see, in the Old Testament, God had saved his people. He'd rescued them. He had promised them mercy. But now, with the coming of Christ, they were going to see the mercy of God in action. They were going to see the mercy of God in the flesh. Now, this word mercy, in, in the New Testament, it's, it's basically the New Testament Greek way of saying an Old Testament Hebrew word, which is chesed, which is normally translated in your Old Testament as steadfast love or maybe loving kindness. And it really is, it's one of those words, and if you know multiple languages, you know that there are, I don't, by the way, that, that made me sound really smart. Um, my wife does, and so she tells me this is true. 
Uh, but it's one of those words that it just doesn't really translate that well into English. Even steadfast love, loving kindness, it's good, mercy, it gets us there, but it's really a much bigger idea. Uh, and, and we see this word, said covenantal love. Uh, in, in, in some of our favorite Bible verses, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. That's that word. His steadfast love endures forever. There's that word in Psalm 136. And we have to be careful because anytime we talk about love, sometimes we, we have a tendency of importing our modern usage into these Old Testament ideas. This word has nothing to do with, with emotion or sentiment within God. It, it's all about covenant faithfulness, covenantal love in action towards its object. You've, you've got to see this because this concept, this truth is the center of the Old Testament and it's the center of the New Testament. God's loyal, covenantal, faithful love for the people he has chosen. And, and here's the point of this text. The coming of Jesus Christ, his incarnation, his taking on, assuming to himself a human nature is the ultimate demonstration and fulfillment of God's covenantal love for his people. So Jesus Christ is the embodied mercy of God on display for all to see. You see that. Jesus Christ is the love of God incarnate, in the flesh, in bodily form. He is the demonstration of God's mercy. So when God says, I want to show the mercy that I had promised before, where do we see that? Jesus Christ. He is the demonstration of God's loyal love and covenant faithfulness. We need not look anywhere else but in Jesus Christ to see God's love on display. This is the whole point of John 3.16, a verse loved by many and still yet misunderstood. John writes, for God so loved, not in an emotional, not this is how much he loved, but rather this is how he demonstrated the love that he had for the world he gave his only begotten son that whoever, that those who believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, eternal life. Brothers and sisters, the mercy of God is not an abstract concept. The mercy of God is not an emotion that sometimes wells up within the eternal God. The mercy of God is God's covenant love in action. The mercy of God is God at work in the person of Jesus Christ. That is the ground of our hope. That is the ground of our assurance. God is faithful. God is loyal to his covenant. So in times of prosperity, in times of affliction, in times of great sorrow, we can be sure that God's covenantal love is unmoving, unwavering, and never ending for us in Jesus Christ. I hope you see, brothers and sisters, how understanding this shapes our faith. It shapes the way that we think about assurance. God did not save you because you prayed a prayer. God did not save you because you made a decision to commit your life to him. God did not save you because you 
walked an aisle. You raised your hand. God did not save you because you loved him so much and that caused within him a response of mercy and love towards you. No. Salvation is not a mechanism. You do something and then God responds. No. Salvation is personal. God saved you because he loved you. God saved you because he wanted to display his mercy to you and in you and through you. God saved you because he wanted you to praise him. There's an old Christian hymn called uh, Come Christians Join to Sing, and it has this line, I love it. It says, praise is his gracious choice. Why do we praise God? Because he chose that he wanted us to praise him out of his grace and mercy towards us, and so he sent his son. He is the author and sustainer of our faith. We responded to him. He did not respond to us. That is critical for our faith, brothers and sisters, because if we get that wrong, every time we mess up and we do it a lot, we're gonna say, well, I don't know if God loves me anymore. You cannot affect God's love for you because he loved you even while you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We heard that in Ephesians. So why did God save us? Because he promised that he would. Why did he promise that? Because he loves us and desired to display his mercy to all of creation in us and through us. Or Paul puts it in Ephesians 1. Why did God save us? To the praise of his glorious grace. Zechariah continues. What purpose so we said, God saved us. Okay, for what purpose? Look at verse 74. To grant us that we, grant, that's, that's grace language, to give to us, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. God has saved us for a purpose, brothers and sisters. We have been saved to serve, to serve without fear in holiness and righteousness forever. Now, now listen to this closely. These are not conditions of salvation. God will save you if you serve him in holiness and righteousness. That's not what the text says. This is not what might happen. This is what is true of all who are in Christ. Look at the language. This is something God grants to us, gives to us. And this makes sense, again, because the original, think, think of the original purpose of humanity. Think of Adam in the garden. What was the original purpose of humanity? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. To serve him. To bear his image to all of creation. The salvation that God has enacted and accomplished in Christ has redeemed us, has purchased us, has freed us, not so that one day we will go to heaven, although we will, but rather Christ has saved us and restored us so that we might fulfill our original purpose, so that we might do what God has created us to do, to serve him in holiness, in righteousness, now and forever. That's what we were created for. That's what Adam was created for. Adam failed. And now Christ, the second Adam, succeeds and restores to us by grace, the original Adamic vocation. 
the promise of eternal life is, is not that we will play golf for eternity or float on clouds or whatever some comic has said, but that we will rule and reign with Christ, that we will serve him in holiness, in righteousness, in the new heavens and the new earth for all of eternity. And we know this, we know all of this, because we can read Zechariah's prophecy through the lens of the rest of the New Testament. But on the face of it, just on the face of it, on the surface, his prophecy is not that remarkable. And at least not the first half. In, in, in a sense, let me explain what I mean. None of this is new, this language, on the surface. Right? God has visited his people before. You'll see that in Exodus. God had redeemed his people before. Think of the judges. He continually redeems them. He keeps visiting them. God has delivered his people from their enemies before. God has shown mercy to his people before in some form or fashion. He had fulfilled promises to his people before. God has raised up kings and priests and prophets before. And yet, his people continued to stray, to fall into its sin and to incur his judgment. Kings, priests, and prophets had all failed, even the best of them. Salvation was always temporary. It never really accomplished anything official and eternal because God's salvation in the Old Testament was never really dealing with the, the heart of the problem, and the heart of the problem is the sinful heart of humanity. This is why you see things like in Hebrews where it says the blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away any sin. All the sacrifices you could do were, didn't solve the problem. So the Israelites have been rescued out of Egypt. Now they're just gonna worship a golden calf the very same moment that Moses is up on the mountain. And this is why the coming of Christ is different. Because Jesus Christ is not just a man. He's not just another king, another priest, another judge, another prophet. He is the word made flesh. He is God incarnate. He is the sinless son of God become human for us and for our salvation, truly God and truly man. He is God with us. You see, in the Old Testament, God had promised to be with his people, and he was. But in the New Testament, God comes and becomes a human. Now again, this is not really clear in the first half of Zechariah's prophecy, but in the second half, it's undeniable. Now, as Zechariah comes to the second half of his prophecy, he begins to talk about John, his son, which, by the way, John in Hebrew means God is merciful, and his role. He begins to talk about John the Baptist and what he will do. And as he speaks of what John will do, we get an even clearer picture of who Jesus will be and who, who he is. Look at verse 76. So he, imagine he's holding his, his newborn son, and he says, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. So John will be the last prophet. He will prepare the way for who? The Lord himself. The Lord himself is coming to his people, just as it was foretold by all the prophets. Messiah, Jesus, would be God with us. The shepherd himself is coming for the sheep. Why? Look at verse 77. Here's where it begins to be different than all of the Old Testament salvations. 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Now, this is different. 
This is different. See, in the Old Testament, God had given people a way to atone for their sins and to kind of just cover them up. That's really what the Old Testament system was. But that whole system was pointing forward in faith to when the true sacrifice would come. And this is him, this new savior, whom John is is going to prepare the way for, will bring forgiveness of sins. He will accomplish the forgiveness of sins. This, This new savior, Jesus, will not just save his people from their physical enemies, Egyptians, the Romans, whoever it is, but from the enemies of their souls. He will save them from the guilt that condemns them before a just and holy God. Why is God doing this? Look at verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God. Here again, we see the same thing, but intensified. So not just to show his mercy, but because of the tender mercy of our God. Notice the the personal pronoun, our God. And here again at the center of this section of Zechariah's prophecy, we see this word, but even more emphasized, the tender mercy. You could could translate it, the compassionate mercy. And this this word that's translated tender is is literally the Greek word for for the bowels, for for the guts. And it signifies that the, the deepest level of compassion, the kind that you feel in the deepest pit of your stomach. Now, God doesn't have parts and he, he doesn't have emotions in the human sense, but his disposition towards us in Christ is exactly that tender mercy, compassionate mercy. It's flowing from the very nature of who God is. Is Again, hear me, the mercy of God is, is not something external to God. It's coming to us out of who he is. We don't have to wonder if God loves us. We don't have to wonder or guess if God will be merciful to us. God did not send Jesus so that he could be merciful. God sent Jesus because he is merciful, because of his tender mercy for us, his people. And look at how Zechariah continues. I love this verse so much. He says, whereby, so because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Look at what this verse is saying. God's tender mercy was towards us when we were in darkness, in the shadow of death, prisoners enslaved to our sin, dead in our trespasses and sins, we needed a savior. And when he comes, it will be like sunrise out of the darkness. Now, that's pretty amazing, but there is some really interesting things kind of hidden in this verse, so to speak. This verse teaches us so much about Jesus and a little bit of it's hidden in the language. Like, I wanna peel back some of the layers to show you what's going on here. Again, every line of this prophecy is referencing Old Testament things that are coming to pass in Christ. So, so this term translated sunrise, it, it can mean a few different things in, in its original language. It can mean sunrise, dawn, morning star. You can think of it like that. And, and in this capacity, it's a reference to Malachi 4.2 which uses the same word. This is what Malachi 4.2 says. It says, but for you, 
who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. So the sun of righteousness shall rise. Zechariah, inspired by the Spirit, is referencing that verse. He's saying, Malachi, here, the sun of righteousness that's coming true, Christ will rise. It's also a reference to Numbers 24, 17. This is, the, this is the prophecy. Listen to this. It says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall rise out of Jacob. It's the same, same word here. A star shall rise out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So here we get Christ is, is the son of righteousness. He is our righteousness. He rises with healing in its wings, healing accompanies him. He's also the one that comes out of Jacob. Remember, he's a son of David. He's a Hebrew, and a scepter shall rise. He is also the king. That's what we're seeing here. So at one level, what the Spirit is telling us through Zechariah and Luke is that Jesus Christ is this star, the sunrise, the righteous one who will come from on high, who will bring with him healing, forgiveness of sins. He will come and shine light into the darkness, the darkness and the shadow of death. He's the light giver, the shining one. Sounds very much like John 1, doesn't it? But there's another level here. This, this word translated sunrise, and I think Luke, or I should say the spirit speaking through Zechariah is making a play on words here. This word translated sunrise, literally what it means is that which springs up from the ground. So it is used of sunrises very commonly. It's also used of plants. And you could translate it, this word is also translated and used to mean branch or sprout, something that sprouts up. You can see the same imagery there. And so the Spirit is, is connecting Jesus to Malachi and to Numbers, but if we also look in the Old Testament for this idea of a branch or a sprout, we find another gold mine, rich with the truths about Jesus. This Old Testament uses this exact same word in some of the most glorious and wonderful prophecies of Christ. Listen to Zechariah chapter 3, 8 and 9. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. This is, what, this is God speaking. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Exact same word. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. God is saying, look, I'm going to bring my servant. His name is the branch. And when he comes in one day, I will remove the iniquity of my people. Speaking of Christ. In Zechariah 6, he says this, and to him, Say, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne and there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall stand between them both. Do you see what this is saying? This is connecting the line of David, the son of David who will build a temple, this son of David is the same one who will be called the branch through whom God will remove the iniquity. And the Lord is saying in Zechariah, through that person, I will build 
my temple. And not only that, he will sit as a priest and a king and rule forever. So when the branch comes, he will be a man who will build the temple of the Lord. He will be a priest king and he shall bring peace. And when the Lord comes, he will take away the sins of his people. But there's more. Jeremiah also speaks of the branch. In Jeremiah 23, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This temple-building, peace-giving priest-king will be the heir of David's throne who will save his people and his name will be the Lord is our righteousness. And not only that, he will guide us into the way of peace, which makes sense because in Haggai, Haggai talks about the new temple, the one that this man would build, the one that Christ would build. And the Lord says in Haggai, it is in that place that I will give peace. What was the temple in the Old Testament? It was the dwelling place of God. And what we see in Christ is that he is the dwelling place of God. He is the temple. He is the the incarnation, or we might even say the templization of God in human flesh. The branch has visited us from on high. So John can say in chapter one, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And literally what he says is tabernacled among us. In Christ, we have the dwelling place of God in the flesh. He is the temple of God. Christ himself is the sacrifice. And by his blood, He makes peace between God and his people because it is by his blood that we are forgiven. It is because of who he is that he was able to accomplish our salvation. And not, this is the important part, not a temporary salvation like all the others, not a salvation with conditions and if you do this, then I will do this. No, Jesus Christ secured for us by his own blood upon the cross an eternal redemption, eternal life. And by his resurrection, he destroyed the power that death had over us. For now, as Revelation tells us, he holds the keys to death and Hades. Death itself is powerless over us because it was powerless over Christ. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news of the gospel of Christ Jesus. Without Jesus, We were all sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death, enslaved to our sins. We were all, as Tab read for us earlier in Ephesians, children of wrath, sons of disobedience, enslaved to worldly powers, enslaved to Satan himself. And it was while we were in that state, while you were in that state, in rebellion against God, that he had mercy on you, that he loved you. And so Ephesians continues, but God being rich in mercy, rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up. Can you see the language? He raised Jesus up and he raised us up with him 
and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, what's the, por- what's the purpose of all this? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before him that we should walk in them, saved to serve. It's the same thing that Zechariah is saying. Brothers and sisters, the cross, this is, this is, this is really, you have to understand this. The cross did not change God's disposition towards us. Christ did not come and die for us so that God could love us. The opposite is true. Christ came for us and for our salvation because of the great mercy and love that God has for us, his people. And because of that salvation which we have in Jesus Christ, we will dwell in his house forever. We will serve him without fear and in holiness and righteousness forever. All of this, all of this, having been granted to us in Christ by his grace and mercy. That is the glory of the incarnation, that God in his mercy came to dwell among us and to rescue us, to destroy our enemies, to destroy our sin, to destroy the power of Satan and the power of death and to purchase for us an eternal redemption by the blood of his own cross and to guide us in the way of peace. This is the theme of this prophecy, the mercy of God and Jesus Christ, the tender mercy of God. It is the theme of the gospel and the theme of the scriptures themselves, the mercy of God displayed in Christ Jesus and only in Christ Jesus. So if you're here this morning, you're, you're not a Christian, you're, you're not a follower of Jesus, your, your faith is, is not in Christ as Messiah, as Lord, I want you to hear this. There is no other place to find the mercy of God. There is no other way to access the mercy of God outside of faith in Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the mercy of God. There is no place to to find the way of peace. Jesus Christ is the way, the life, and the truth. There is no place to find this forgiveness of sins outside of Christ. There is no way to be free from the shadow of death hanging over you outside of the one who conquered death in the grave. There is no way to escape the fear of condemnation, the fear and the weight of guilt and shame outside of Jesus Christ. But that is the good news. Because if you're here today, you've heard the good news of Jesus Christ. You've heard of the great and tender mercy of God. So my friend, place your faith in Christ this morning. Believe on him and you will be saved. Trust in him. Cast yourself upon his mercy and you will find him to be satisfying. You will find in Christ a loving savior. Turn from your sins, turn from your dead works, turn from all of your failure and find a life in Christ. 
Believe on Christ and you will find and God will grant you eternal life in him. But if you're here this morning, your faith is in Christ. Brothers and sisters, rejoice. Rejoice in the mercy of God towards you. Rejoice and rest. Rest in the love of God towards you. Revel in the peace that God has so graciously granted to you in Christ Jesus. And as you do that, look with eager expectation to the return of Christ when all of this will be ultimately and finally fulfilled. When the presence of sin and death will be eradicated forever. And know that in this life and in eternity, God's love and his goodness and his mercy will follow you all of your days, will pursue you, will hunt you down. And let your knowledge of his mercy and love towards you in Christ Jesus propel you in a life of service to him. Not because you feel obligated, not because you have to or God won't love you, but because you know that he loves you. And if you ever doubt your salvation, if you ever find yourself struggling, doubting God's love for you, if you ever doubt his mercy, look to Christ. For it is there that we see his mercy for us. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so gracious to us. You are so good, Lord. Though many of us have believed in Christ for such a long time, we need to be reminded of your mercy and your grace daily, Lord, hourly, every minute. So Father, I pray for these brothers and sisters here, Lord, I pray that wherever they're at, that you would minister to their hearts your grace and mercy in this time. Father, if there are brothers and sisters here who are struggling with sin, feeling condemnation, feeling guilt, Lord, I pray that you would remind them that there is no condemnation for those who in Christ Jesus, those who are in Christ Jesus. Father, that that freedom that they have in Christ would propel them into obedience to you, out of gratitude, out of joy. Lord, I pray for any here this morning who are, who are restless, who are doubting your goodness towards them, who are doubting your mercy. Lord, I pray through your spirit that you would give them rest in Christ. Remind them this morning of your love and mercy towards them. Father, I pray for those this morning who don't know you. Oh, Lord, save them. Grant to them the faith and the joy in Christ that we have experienced. Lord, give them eternal life, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church East County. Please find us online at gracechurcheast.org if you would like to find out more about us.